this is The Crime Cafe, your podcasting source of great crime, suspense, and thriller writing. I'm your host, Debbie Mack. Before I bring on my guest, I'll just remind you that The Crime Cafe has two ebooks for sale the nine book box set and the short story anthology. You can find the buy links for both on my website, debbiemack.com. D E B B I M A C K. Dot com under the Crime Cafe link. You can also get a free copy of either book if you become a Patreon supporter. You'll get that and much more if you support the podcast on Patreon, along with our eternal gratitude for doing so. It's my pleasure to have as my guest today the author of two series and a standalone novel, as well as several short stories. And he is also a Seamus nominee and nominee for other awards. <clears throat> it's Dana King. Hi, Dana. It's great to have you on today. Debbie, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. Um, it's my pleasure to have you on, Dana. I, I was at the C3 with Dana, and he told the funniest story during Noir at the Bar, but we won't go into that. <laughs> It was great, though. It was a wonderful takeoff on the Sergeant Friday uh, dragnet thing and uh, had a lot of hard-boiled humor in it. So um, I'm a big fan just based on that. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) So you have two series, Penn's River and Nick Forte. Or is that correct? That's right. Nick Forte. That's right. And uh, is Nick Forte a private eye? Yes. Okay, tell us a little bit about that series. Uh, the Forte series, he's a private eye based in Chicago. Um, it got started, actually, you mentioned the, the satire on the Joe Friday stories. It got started, he was the first character I actually created. I was coming out of a musical career, and I wrote a short story that was supposed to be a satire on Mickey Spillane that used a bunch of friends of mine as part of the story with a musical background to it. And it was so well received by a lot of people. I wrote another story about the job I was at and included them. Same type too. He's investigating something at this job. And I went to another job and they read the other two stories and one-on-one for them. And pretty soon I got to thinking, maybe I should do something a little more serious for this character. And that's where the idea of writing the novels came from. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. And how did you choose Chicago as a, uh, as a location? I was living in Chicago at the time, and I really enjoyed my time there. So there were a lot of locations, a lot of things about Chicago that came to mind when I was putting them together. Interesting. And the Penn's River uh, novels. Now, I'm reading one now and enjoying it. Um, They're uh, based in a small town near Pittsburgh, correct? Yes, yes. Is that because you're originally from that area? Yes. Penn's River as a town is actually an amalgam of three small cities about 20 miles up the Allegheny River from Pittsburgh. And uh, I grew up sort of in all three of them. I was born in one, and the hospital is no longer there. My parents took me to an apartment in, the, in another of those three cities. That building has since burned to the ground and is now a vacant lot. And then I grew up in the third one and lived there. In fact, my parents lived there until just last year when my father passed. And um, we had, um, uh, so I know not just the area, but I know the people, I know the kinds of things they're interested in. 
I, I was, I had an idea, what happened was I had an idea for a police procedural story and I wanted to tell it and I was trying, I needed a new setting because obviously Forte wouldn't work for a police procedural. And I actually fell into the old, write what you know. Well, what I know is what those little towns in Western Pennsylvania are like. So that was where I decided to set it. And I've been very happy ever since then because, because stories, ideas, story ideas just present themselves to me now all the time. Mm-hmm. So would you say that setting is a, a pretty critical part of both series novels? I would say yes, certainly much more the Penns River um, because I do make a conscious effort. Now, I mean, I, I still subscribe to the local paper on the internet and I pull stories out of the local paper all the time that I can use. But also one of the things I wanted to, to pick on there was Pittsburgh has done very well since the steel mills left. There was a, a period of quite a few years where things were tough, but now it's rebuilt itself as an educational and financial and, and um, medical facility. Uh, wonderful city and a beautiful city. But if you get up the river where I grew up, very little, if any, of that progress actually went up the river. We're still living in towns that have abandoned steel mills in them. And, and to use a phrase my father used once, I said, well, gee, there's always new businesses starting in town, Dad. And he said, yeah, but they're all locals. And I, I remember the phrase, actually used the phrase in the book. He said, they're all locals helping each other go under a little slower. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, that's interesting talking about Pittsburgh. I uh, lived there for a brief time, and I'm very familiar with some of the uh, places that you mentioned in the oh, okay. In the novel, Kennywood, for instance. Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, the roller coaster. I went on it. <laughs> Pittsburgh is actually a very nice city. I I love it. I should have worn my um, my pirate shirt for this interview, but <laughs> instead I wore the In and Out shirt for other reasons. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> but um, so yeah, yeah. So I can really. It, those places when, when you write about them. Um, how would you describe your writing generally? Do you see yourself as more of a police procedural writer or a hard-boiled mystery writer? More like the tough PI or more like um, or a little of both? I, I would have to say a little, a little of both. To, to me, pretty much everything I write now, particularly, particularly the novels, are either a procedural or a PI story. What happens is I get the idea for a story. And then sometimes a decision has to get made about which venue would I be better off telling that story in. Uh, the best example is I was, I was, oh goodness, I was 30 or 35,000 words into what I thought was going to be a Nick Forte novel and just didn't like how it was going. I mean, it wasn't anything wrong. It just didn't, it didn't seem to move. And then I took a couple of days off to go back and redo the outline and think about some stuff. And it occurred to me, this isn't a Nick Forte story. This is a Penn's River story. So I just started over again, redid the outline. And once I decided, oh, this needs to be set in Penn's River, I just blew right through it. It was one of the easiest books I ever wrote because I realized, oh, I had, I had the wrong venue for it. So a lot of what I, what I pick is um, um, which, which approach will tell the story better. So far as whether I write mysteries, certainly the, Certainly a PI story, I think. I always tell my PIs from the first person. And they're somewhat more of a mystery because the reader knows everything that the investigator knows. But even those, 
very often I've solved the mystery two thirds of the way through the book. And it kind of morphs from being a mystery into more or less of a thriller as it, 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 what happens is it kind of comes into, okay, now we know who did it. What are they going to do about it? And are they going to do anything about it before something else bad happens? So I'm less concerned with keeping the reader in suspense about the killer all the way to the end than I am in keeping them in suspense about the resolution all the way to the end. Mm -hmm. that, that's a great point because a mystery doesn't have to be a complete whodunit. In other right. words, you can combine elements of the thriller with elements of mystery. And I like stories like that personally. I think they, they're not only fun to read, but they translate well to the screen, for instance. I, yeah, I, I think it's a good point. Um, in, in the, first, the first Nick Forte book I wrote called A Small Sacrifice, um, I, I reveal the killer. Oh, geez, it can't be much more than halfway through the book. And, and, and you nail him down within two-thirds of the way through the book. It's obviously this guy. Here's exactly what happened. But by that time, it's been turned around. So now he's coming after Forte. So the rest of the book now is Forte is almost kind of, you know, the man in jeopardy. What's he going to do about it? And I was always curious about how that would play out with people because it wasn't, it was, you know, it wasn't either fish or fowl, actually. And then it got nominated for a Seamus Award. So I figured it played out okay. So I didn't worry about it after that anymore. Well, getting nominated for a Seamus is definitely an honor. And uh, I will have to read that book. Sounds very interesting. Uh, can you tell us a little about what Wild Bill is about? Wild Bill is the only standalone I ever wrote. And I wrote it when I was, I'd written four Fortes. I was getting ready to get the Penns River series together. And I had an idea for a story about a, an FBI agent who was close to retirement, who worked in Chicago. So I was still up on Chicago stuff. And I've also done a, an enormous amount of research on organized crime in Chicago. So I knew how it worked pretty well. And, um, the guy's name is, is uh, Willard or Will Hickox. But as a young FBI agent, he used to do things that the FBI kinds of frown, kind of frowns on, like not calling for backup and walking in on bank robberies. So he earned the nickname Wild Bill and was sent to Chicago to listen to wiretaps as punishment for the rest of his career. Well, he developed a skill for it, and he became their expert in flipping mob guys. So he's going to take down the big mob boss. It's his last career case. Then he's going to ride off into the sunset as a retiree. And here the mob boss dies of natural causes, which prompts a war among the two factions that want to take over. And the problem Will is having is they're killing off his sources as part of the war. The people he had cultivated over the years who would – they, wouldn't, they weren't really snitches. They were people who would confirm things for him or kind of try to build up some goodwill in case they needed some. These guys are starting to turn up dead. So he winds up taking matters into his own hands and playing a more active part in the war. I hadn't thought about it much until actually talking about you right now. I guess in the way he does it, it's actually got little bits of uh, Deshiel Hammett's Red Harvest in it. Because he yeah. winds up playing both factions against each other to get what he wants out of the deal. That's that's wild. That's a great novel, by the way. I just yes, it read it recently for the first time, and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> great stuff. Speaking of which, who are your favorite authors, the, one who's, the ones who inspire you most in your writing? That evolves with time a little bit. I, I mm -hmm. would say um, the, the ones who are always consistent are uh, Elmore Leonard, 
um, because he, it was through Leonard that I learned that how much of the story you can tell through dialogue. And dialogue is probably what I do best. So it kind of gave me permission to write these very dialogue heavy stories. Uh, but Ed McBain for, uh, really brought me into police procedurals. Um, I, I'm, McBain's been dead over 10 years now. And I, I hope he's due for a renaissance because he, he strikes me right now as being very badly undervalued. As great as he was, I think people tended to take him for granted. So now when you ask people who are the best in the business and they'll go through a list and then you'll say, well, what about McBain? Oh, oh yeah, McBain. As <laughs> if that goes without saying, and it shouldn't. But uh, McBain was great. And I, I think he's, he's influenced me into writing kind of the multi-point of view uh, police stories from different cops' points of view. And the, the person who's really started to influence me more in the last four or five years, it's become more, more evident in the last few Penn's River books, is Joseph Wambaugh and his, um, his LA stories he started telling my God way back in the 60s. And I think, I don't think he writes anymore, but he's, he's gotten, you know, he's probably written 30 or 40 books, writes fiction and nonfiction. And he, his famous line that I do try to work on now is he says that the point of a good police story is not how the cop works the case but how the case works the cop hmm. and what the influences are on the cop. So I've, I've, I'm making now more of a conscious effort to kind of think, well, you know, what would Wamba do in this situation? Okay. It's worth kind of pushing it that way. So I'd say right now, those are probably the big three. Interesting. Oh, oh I'm sorry. And, and of course, Hammett. Hammett not course. So much when I first got started, but now as I, Chandler used to be on that list when I first started to write PI stories, because most people want to write PI stories, got the idea from Chandler. Over time, though, I have come to appreciate Hammett's economy of words much more than Chandler's flowery prose. So if I'm looking at something and I, my first thought now is what can I take out of this and still make the point? And, and I got, I picked that up from reading a lot of Deshio Hammett. I'm with you on that. Um, I think I do, I do screenwriting as well as novel mm -hmm. writing. And what you can take out is essential in screenwriting. Yeah. It's all about taking stuff out and using the very minimum of words that you can to express a, a situation, a place, a, you know, a, a story. It's interesting you bring that up. I saw, I'm a big fan of watching writer interviews on YouTube. Uh -huh. And I watch every Dennis Lehane interview I can find. I'm a huge Lehane fan. Although I can't honestly say he's had much of an influence on my writing. I love his stuff. And I like him. I love him personally, his, his attitude toward things. But he tells a story about Mystic River that the, he was curious to see what the movie would do with the beginning of Mystic River, where he lays out what the kids were, what the, what the men were like when they were kids before the, the one guy get, gets abused. And he said he thought that that might have been the best 50 pages he'd ever written in his life. This whole little prologue flashback kind of a thing to set the kids up. And he went to see the movie and he said, as a compliment, he said, and Brian Helgeland had condensed that whole thing into five minutes. Mm -hmm. And it was better than what I had done. He said, because what Lahane realized was he wasn't thinking visually. Mm -hmm. He was writing for a reader and Helgelin was thinking all the time, what's this going to look like on the screen? And because of images and other things you can do in a movie, you can't do in a book, but he could condense that 50 pages into no more than five minutes on the screen and boom, it was just as powerful and just as good. And then the movie runs from there. Exactly. And, and movies are all about the opening image. Right. One of the most important 
parts of a movie is the opening image. So an author who can appreciate that is a godsend to any uh, screenwriter who adapts their material, I have to say. Well, and now, and, and, you know, Lehane writes screenplays himself now. Uh, That's his, right, yeah. His book, The Drop, was originally written as a screenplay. He made a novel out of it while he was going. And somebody asked him about um, doing his own books as screenplay. He says, no, I would never even think of doing one of my own books. He said, because when I wrote the book, if I thought it could have been cut, I would have cut it. Exactly. But he appreciates it. You can't take a book like, say, The Given Day that's 700 pages long and make even a mini-series without making trims and making things run together. He said, that's the kind of thing that almost has to be done by someone who looks at it from the outside and can see where you can make these changes without really having too much of yourself in them. I think there's a lot to be said for having somebody else do an adaptation of your own book. Um, yeah. It's very difficult. It's like having an editor, you know, it's very difficult to look at it objectively. Um, I was intrigued by the fact that you were trained as a classical musician and that you worked as a musician. Yes. Uh, when did you start writing? After I was a musician. <laughs> what happened was... How many I, years have you spent writing? I've been writing now for... Um, since I wrote those first Forte stories, it's got to be about 25 years now. Oh, my goodness. Um, what I, I, I never thought of it this way, but I think what happened was when I finally had to admit that I wasn't going to be able to make a career as a trumpet player. And um, I, we, we had a baby then. I had to make some money. I had to teaching. And then a bunch of things happened that I'll spare you. But I basically got divorced and wound up moving to Chicago for a job. And I think what happened was I needed some kind of a creative outlet to fill those couple of hours a day I wasn't sitting behind a trumpet practicing. And I sort of fell into the writing thing and found that A, I liked it, and B, I appeared to have some aptitude for it. So for me to carve out, you know, an hour or so a day after work to write was no different than carving out an hour or so a day to practice or to go to a gig. So it just kind of filled up my day. I mean, I was talking to somebody a while ago and you know, having grown up as, as a musician since I was a kid, I have a hard time sometimes thinking what other people do with all their spare time. If they don't have something to practice or something to write, what do you do all day? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I used to uh, play piano. I was obsessive about it when I was in high school and got good enough to where I actually could have majored in music if I'd wanted to, but did not choose to do that. Um, I don't think I had quite the faith that I would make it as a musician. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, be that as it may, um, what's your favorite kind of music? Well, it depends on what kind of mood I'm in. I mean, when I'm, when I'm working, um, and I just want to help, have something to help me pass, particularly if, if things at work are getting hectic, I'll, I like to play a lot of classical music. Um, late classicist, early romantics, or sometimes even back into the late romantics. Um, but then if I'm in the car, say we're taking a road trip, I will listen to anything from rhythm and blues to jazz to some rock to country. Uh, I've got a pretty, actually a fairly eclectic range of music I listen to. I think musicians are like that. Um, what, what are your favorite movies? <laughs> um, she we, said we, you know, we have we 
we, I, this is actually easier to answer than my time because my wife and I actually have a few that we call on the rotation. Um, I'll just, I'll just feel the urge a couple of times a year to pull out LA confidential <laughs> and watch it. And I always find new things to enjoy. And the funny story about LA confidential is I often want to watch it after we've just watched something else. Hmm. Um, and, and, and my wife will often say, well, or actually it's kind of a running joke now. She'll say, you know what? I, Put it on, and I'll just fall asleep while it's on. <laughs> it sounds then, like my husband. <laughs> but then two and a half hours later, she'll say, damn it, I've forgotten how good that was. I, 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 I can't fall asleep watching LA Confidential. So that one comes up pretty often. Uh, I watch The French Connection once a year or so. But the, the big ones that come up is um, on my birthday every year, we watch Get Shorty. And our New Year's Eve entertainment, um, we go out before the amateurs go out, as she says. We've been out, we've had our steak dinner, and we come home, and we watch The Big Lebowski every year on New Year's. That's what I was waiting for. That's what I was I know. waiting for. I know. The dude abides. <laughs> it, did, it didn't occur to me. I, I should have worn my shirt for the interview. I just, I just saw it a couple of minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, I just remember you wearing that at C3 last year. Mm-hmm. The dude abides. Yeah, uh, Quirky and I, Quirky, my wife, we can go, sometimes it seems like whole days at a time, and respond to almost any situation by quoting lines from The Big Lebowski or Get Shorty or Deadwood. Just, They're all great. Yeah, you know, one of those three. We can just find a little situation and just look at each other and say something from one of those, and the other person <laughs> immediately knows what we're getting at, and we just go on from there. <laughs> Yeah, I, I could go around all my, you know, throughout the day, just quoting movies, probably. Well, I've, we've toyed with the idea sometimes of just saying, you know, we should try to go a whole day. Or maybe even just like an hour or so in the course of a day. And only quote our favorite movies and find the lines that are, that are appropriate. And, and then because she... She will occasionally look at me when I have an idea like that and take another one of our favorite movies and smile and go, you just keep thinking, Butch. That's what you're good at. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Uh, let's see. So what's in the pipeline in terms of what you're working on? What I'm working on right now is it'll be the sixth of the Penns River books. Uh, I'd give you the working title, except right now the working title is Penns River Six. <laughs> I don't really have a good working title for it yet. It's um, um, it's a story I actually, for lack of a better term, stole from David Simon's book Homicide. Uh, mm -hmm. it, there, there, there's a, there's a hit and run case in there that they have a hard time getting declared as a homicide. The medical examiner won't won't certify on it, and there were things about that that I thought worked particularly well, even though even though the true story Simon sites took place in Baltimore, um, there were things about the part of Baltimore that it took place in that I thought played well into a Penns River setting. And then I also wanted a main story that didn't require the whole book to solve because going back to the Wamba influence, what I wanted to do was tell a bunch of shorter stories that really gave you an idea about how the town works. So that's the, that's the unifying thread. But there are also probably, I'd say four or five anyhow, several chapter little stories within this that get broken up, that this is the one that, that works through it. So I'm trying to see if I can make that whole, this whole thing hold together. And that's what I'm working on now. <laughs> 
That sounds cool. Let's oh, hope. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. Um, is there uh, anything else you'd like to say before we finish up? Um, I would just like to thank you. This is the first. Uh, this is the first interview like this I've done, and I want to thank you for making it so easy for me. Um, it's uh, there. It, it, it's a lot of fun, and uh, you know, thanks for thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to seeing you at the at a writer thing before too long. Yeah, me too. Same here. Um, thanks so much for being here, uh, Dana. And uh, with that, I will just say, uh, please remember everybody to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast channel. And it helps also if you leave a review. It helps us immeasurably if you do that. Uh, the Crime Cafe box set and short story anthology are also available for sale online at all retailers. You can get copies of that, plus more if you support the Crime Cafe Patreon page. So just look for the Crime Cafe link on my website, debbymack.com, D-E-B-B-I-M-A-C-K.com. And with that, I'll just say thanks for listening. Thanks, Dana, again, and happy reading to you all, and I'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>